Welcome to our listeners to the fifth episode of Voltec Tech Talks. This week, Sherbaz Hashmi and I will be discussing blockchain technology, its associated trends, and further ramifications of the technology. How are you doing today, Shabazz? Yeah, it's great to see you too, John. It's been quite a while uh, since our last one. I'm glad we could get together and make this happen. Um, cryptocurrency. So, uh, do you have any experience with it personally? Well, with regards to experience, I would label myself as an amateur investor, but broadly, I'm simply interested in the things that it will bring about. I do believe that Bitcoin itself poses a significant likelihood of becoming a hugely substantial global financial revolution. Bitcoin itself was proposed in 2008 in the wake of the financial crisis. After the publishing of its white paper by a person operating under the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto, as a means of control and response to the visibly obvious way in which centralized means of financing and economics had failed the economy. Bitcoin has surged in popularity since, and as a consequence of that, a great variety of different blockchain applications have appeared as well. I think a good way to start off this conversation might be for you to explain blockchain using that metaphor of yours, Shabazz, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, definitely. So um, I've had a bit of experience I guess, looking into blockchain systems, understanding how they work under the hood. And there's this analogy that I found pretty useful. So for those of you who don't have too much experience with Bitcoin, um, you can think of Bitcoin, like you can think of a blockchain as a literal chain of blocks. So think of like a block as like a puzzle piece if you'd like to. And imagine having one long row of puzzle pieces where each piece has to link in to the last piece and if the shapes don't match it won't work so let's say you have five people um, telling each other what the last puzzle piece was and they all build their puzzle their row of puzzle pieces together the next time a new data point comes on or a new puzzle piece gets attached um, they'll know what it needs to be like to fit onto the last few and then if you go back and someone tries to modify a puzzle piece like um, 10 times down their chain, like uh, 10 pieces back, um, if you try and modify it, um, while you might carve your puzzle piece to make it work somehow, um, it will be very hard um, to prove that all of the that it actually fits into the puzzle piece. And even if you find a way to do it, everyone else will see that their record history of those puzzle pieces don't match your record history of the puzzle piece. So by distributing these blockchains across multiple clients or distributing these rows of puzzle pieces across different um, people, uh, you can actually see um, in a verifiable way if any data has been modified or manipulated. Um, it's very powerful, especially in finance. Um, so this enables decentralization of this technology. So not just one person has this ledger or row of puzzle pieces. Uh, transparency um, by the same idiom, because it's so decentralized, you have a very clear picture of who has what, because we're all keeping record. And it's immutable in the sense that you can't change the previous puzzle pieces because of the way that they're carved out. So, um, Harry, I guess, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I really enjoy that analogy. It's a great means of explaining blockchain mechanics. On that note, 
Blockchain tech can be used to store a massive diversity of types of information. It just happens that for Bitcoin, it stores the numeric value of the quantity of Bitcoin held by a user, as well as tracking their address, but that's the standard between all of the existing cryptocurrencies as explained well by your metaphor. The address at which each token changes hands becomes part of the ledger, thereby enhancing its security. Other cryptocurrencies will tokenize different concepts and assets. It's been projected that we might use blockchain to store medical or legal data. Regarding the security of the network, Bitcoin runs on a consensus algorithm called Proof of Work, or POW, an algorithm which is designed to confirm transactions and produce new blocks to add to the chain. Computers that dedicate their computing power to solving these cryptographic puzzles are termed miners, because essentially these are cryptographic puzzles. Your earlier analogy is very fitting to Bitcoin as a concept. So this is a very powerful innovation in the protection of computers from attacks because of the requirement of dedicating some computing power to it. In the case of cryptocurrency, such an attack is possible in theory, but you would have to control upwards of half of the computing supply. That's why it's called a 51% attack. and It would enable those who now control the network to undo transactions, double spend coins, as well as block users from transacting on it. Now, a major downside of this proof of work mechanism is its electricity consumption. Using that level of computing power has an impact. Bitcoin has been found to use approximately 0.28% of global electricity, last I checked, which is actually more than Switzerland uses. This is Bitcoin's greatest strength, but also its worst pitfall. The demand of one's computing power provides the security, but at the cost of substantial amounts of electricity. On that waste and the associated economic effects, GPUs surged in price as Bitcoin gained in popularity in the previous several years. The profitability, the profitability piques people's interest and they in turn purchase mining hardware on a large scale, which has significantly affected the price of graphics cards. Funnily enough, that kind of vilifies the whole concept of Bitcoin mining to some gaming communities. Whilst Bitcoin is intended to function in a decentralized manner, mining facilities have tended more towards becoming somewhat centralized because of the principles of economies of scale, wherein you can lower the operating and overhead and electricity costs associated with establishing a mining setup by simply doing it at a large scale. This is another supposed drawback of the proof of work consensus method. We can compare this to a second popular consensus method, which is used by other cryptocurrencies. Proof of stake. Now, whilst Shabazz's puzzle analogy applies very well to the proof of work mechanism, we might have to consider a different analogy for proof of stake. So think of a lottery, for instance. If you have two tickets, you are twice as likely to win a lottery in comparison to someone with only a single ticket. A proof of stake. Let's say that each ticket is equivalent to one coin, and with each coin you own, you increase your chance of mining the next block. For proof of stake, the way you increase your likelihood of mining the next block is to increase the amount of cryptocurrency that you own versus proof of work, which involves increasing the amount of computing power that you employ. So 
The second most major cryptocurrency network that comes to mind is Ethereum. Second in overall value of its network only to Bitcoin. And the ethos of the Ethereum network is to build a scalable network that can accommodate a variety of other blockchain technologies. Since its inception, this has occurred and there are many blockchains now based on Ethereum. Another strength of Ethereum is the use of smart contracts. These are self-executing contracts which do not require human input and are fulfilled by a computer in a decentralized manner. The perks of this versus traditional contractual agreements include accuracy, speed, efficiency, paper-free, and transparency among more. The huge ramification of this technology is the decentralization of finance systems. Think of how difficult it is to secure loans and to finance projects at present. There are mediation fees, transaction costs associated with going through a bank or a lending service, and ludicrous interest rates. These are all inefficiencies that simply do not need to exist, and smart contract technology is a great way to counter that. One more concept regarding Ethereum is dApps, otherwise known as a decentralized app. So Bitcoin is arguably the first example of a dApp, basically because it is open source code that enables users to join its blockchain network and thus participate in its mining algorithm. And the idea of Ethereum is that it enables other dApps to be built upon itself. We can interchange dApp basically with other blockchains. So Ethereum is designed to accommodate other blockchain technologies. Very powerful concept. Yeah, definitely. Um, if I could add on to that. Um, with proof of work, because these um, GPUs, they're constantly crunching the numbers. So you're basically starting off with so many people trying to verify these mathematical puzzles, like these miners, right? And they're all crunching through numbers so frequently, 24-7. You've got a lot of waste as well, associated with these cards just burning out. And the next time you have, like, a new graphics card out that can do double or triple the computations, a lot of these cards just get discarded or thrown away. They're not needed by the second-hand market. Because a lot of the second-hand market have the stigma around mining cards because they've been used so much that the, the perception is that the likelihood of fault in these cards is very, very high. So this leads to an insane amount of e-waste as well as electricity consumption. So there's definitely a lot of waste involved in just proving these cryptographic puzzles, correct? Absolutely. The power of this lies in that there are powerful financial institutions the world over that depend on the fact that you rely on them for financing and loan-related issues. In this model, there are people and institutions profiteering off this mechanism, prompting the question of whether this is actually a necessity at all. The Ethereum network will allow for smart contractual agreements to cut out these middle people and ultimately make financing and borrowing costs lower and more decentralized and more available to people the world over. This is done via tokenized dApps and smart contracts on the Ethereum network. So I suppose that's why I found it relevant to go somewhat into the architecture of the Ethereum blockchain. So here's one use case and application of this concept. That would be the tokenization of real estate. So 
thinking of real estate investment as it currently stands, it is not particularly accessible to most people, particularly of low incomes, people with little to no capital at their disposal. In order to traditionally invest in a real estate asset, you, generally speaking, must be able to finance it in whole, or be able to request for a loan, mortgage, requiring an amount of money that is unrealistic for many. If we could tokenize a percentage stake of a given real estate asset into some form of an immutable cryptocurrency, which corresponds to a certain degree of joint ownership in property, this could be a way to effectively counter that. So the case study of this is ClickOwn. There is a company that has done this already. ClickOwn is spelt with a K and their business model is basically, here I'll set, run us through an example basically. So a particular real estate project requires 10,000 tokens to be constructed running over the Ethereum network. And an individual will convert $200 into 50 tokens and then dedicates them to this project. So that's 50 out of 10,000 tokens, which is 0.5%, thereby giving them a 0.5% stake in that property. So throughout the lifetime of that financial investment, they are entitled to 0.5% of the income of that property. And the power of this cannot be overstated. This represents the democratization of the real estate industry, one which has traditionally been inaccessible to most, and which could ultimately represent movements towards a financial world, which enables greater class mobility and removes a lot of the leverage and bargaining power held over people of lower incomes by corporations, governments, and banks. Yeah, definitely. So the interesting thing about smart contracts is that they're computer generated. So therefore, um, the with Bitcoin, um, the obligation of the stakeholders within that, um, I guess, contract is not explicitly stated, um, but within smart contracts, because they, these are all explicitly, I mean, because they're all computer generated, um, the code itself um, explains the obligation of most of these parties in the contract. So um, it's almost like a binding agreement along with the cryptocurrency, which um, is a pretty interesting, I guess, differentiator. It, it totally puts down the barriers to entry of getting into that big real estate market. You could totally own something through um, this whole idea, right? That's super cool. This is another example um, of a cool Bitcoin I mean, Ethereum application. Uh, have you heard of the Brave browser? I don't know if you have. I've heard good things about Brave browser, yeah. So um, they've created their own cryptocurrency, which is um, pegged to, I believe, Ethereum. And they, they've solved this massive issue that people have been having is there are so many ads in my browser. Uh, can you make them go away? And the problem is that if you just use an ad blocker, the people whose content you consume, um, you're not going to be giving them any money. So after a while, um, their jobs may no longer be profitable, you know, if ads are their main sense of like, um, I, I guess, main source of revenue. So Brave comes in here, changes the game. They're like, okay, we'll give you ad block. But if you desire to do so, you can pay your content creators in our 
basic attention tokens. So it's another cryptocurrency. And that kind of changes the game because you get to decide who gets your money that you would already give, in a sense, through ads. So it's like a direct transfer of money and you don't have to see ads. Or, or if you have a bit of free time on your hand, right? If you're not doing too much, it's a Sunday evening, you put on the music and you're like, okay, what do I do with my time? You can go onto this Brave browser and actually watch ads for these basic attention tokens. So there are so many applications, especially this one that I find so fascinating. It's so out of the box that you think cryptocurrencies is just a way to get rich quick. But I disagree. I think if you actually look at these applications, you can actually change the world, the way the world works at a fundamental level just through leveraging these new currencies. Um, that is actually one of the... Um, a very, very well growing currency right now as well. I don't know if they've uh, dipped recently, but last time I checked, they're doing very, very well because more people have been using this browser called the Brave Browser. Totally not a sponsor, but um, they're doing some really, really cool stuff with this um, Ethereum. What do you think? So I wouldn't wish having to sit through a sequence of advertisements upon my worst enemy. However, structurally, we face a significant issue in that it's actually the most reasonable way to monetize the online world. We know that a majority of people are not interested in paying directly for content, and so it is unavoidable that ads continue to be used, at least until perhaps some other form of monetization can be determined. And the striking thing for me about what they are doing with Brave Browser is that it returns power to the hands of the audience, and it enables them to determine how they wish to spend their time. And that's a great use case for this tech. Yeah, I think there's some really, really cool examples here. So you can see from like a real estate ownership to allow people in, uh, I guess, socioeconomic situations, which would not enable them to invest and accumulate wealth and redistribute wealth in a way um, that they could actually build up meaningful real estate portfolios. You go from that to this completely different um, game of web advertisements, right? You can see this cryptocurrency thing um, working over so so many industries, and it's actually like if the adoption numbers, which they have been getting higher, people aren't just trying to get rich off these things; they're actually using them for change in society. It wasn't; it was never designed to get rich quick, right? It was designed to actually make a difference, and it's so cool to see people doing it. And hopefully, after a bit more adoption. Um, I think we'll be living in a very different world. It's insane. Um, yeah. Can you think of any other applications? I can, yeah. In agreement with you, I don't believe that Bitcoin was intended to make people rich quickly. It was, however, intended as a safeguard against the government control of currency and its subsequent debasement. There are economic forces that can damage one's cash holdings. If you simply hold on to your cash for 20 years, it will become half as valuable at an inflation rate of 3.2%. This is one of the reasons that Bitcoiners will typically reject the concept of inflation, deeming it basically an invisible tax. So in the case of Bitcoin, there is a limit to the amount of Bitcoin that will ever exist. Taking awareness of supply and demand into consideration, this fact means a lot. We don't know how much gold will be mined in 2021 or how much money will be printed However, we do know exactly how much Bitcoin will be mined. It isn't inflationary, which describes the falling value in a unit of currency typically 
from increasing the supply of that currency. And it's not deflationary because deflationary describes an increase in the value of a currency because the supply of it is decreased. Bitcoin is, however, disinflationary. So new Bitcoins are being created with every passing day. However, 85% of all Bitcoins that will ever exist already do exist. With such a limited supply, we've already seen what effect this has had on prices over the past decade. Bitcoin started at less than one US dollar and has peaked at its very highest at about 20,000 US dollars. From what I can see, this trend will inevitably continue and I've seen projections of a million dollar Bitcoin by 2035. So one millionth of a Bitcoin is referenced as one single Satoshi these days. People abbreviate that to sats. And so at present, the slang that Bitcoin accumulators use is to stack sats. One sat is basically one hundredth of a US dollar cent right now. But at the if Bitcoin were to reach a million dollars per coin, one Satoshi would be worth one dollar. But that's hilarious because if you think about it, though, with um, like we understand the motivation uh, for this happening, right? So you've got um, these federal bank reserves that are constantly throwing money into the economy that they're generating out of nowhere. We haven't been pegged to a gold coin in so many years. So you understand um, people go from some scarce some scarce physical, um, I guess, currency like gold. And then we shift over to notes that are being printed out like haphazardly almost. That's leading to almost a devaluation. I know this is a very simplistic view of this, but it captures, it models the idea, right? So um, that's where the desire to have something finite comes from. But I just find it to be so ironic that people are like, we miss having something physical to peg our money to that's scarce. Even if it's not completely scarce, because you can keep mining more gold. But at that moment in time, it is somewhat scarce, right? And you're shifting from having this desire to have this physical entity shifting to something else that's kind of already been generated in advance right and well it's not being generated in advance but you're, it, there's a scarcity there of something that isn't actually like isn't actually present but we're okay with that somehow i mean it solves our problem but i just find it so interesting shifting from gold to printing money and now we're almost at this point where we think okay the scarcity of gold was good let's try get that back but we don't actually need it to be physical do you know what i mean it's so fascinating Yep. The value proposition of gold is an interesting one. It's a constant throughout a significant portion of human history. It's a shiny, illustrious metal with high perceived value, which led to its usage in jewelry and today is useful in electronics and dentistry. And many cultures the world over have viewed the element as having inherent value for thousands of years. But scarcity also plays into its value. I don't know if you've heard about how King Napoleon used to use aluminium for his plates and silverware because he lived during a time where basically it was seen as an opulent material to own due to the high costs associated with mining and refining it. So he'd use them to show off his wealth to his guests. But following on from this scarcity argument, there's a reasonable amount of gold on the planet still. To be exact though, it is actually relatively scarce still. 
The World Gold Council estimates that remaining gold reserves account for only 30% of what's been already mined. This means that 23% of the total gold supply remains unmined. So we've already gotten over three quarters of the gold that exists on planet Earth. That's excluding gold that is in seawater. There is a very small concentration of gold scattered throughout the oceans as well. But from what I've seen, it's beyond feasible to harness that gold. And now if we can compare that scarcity to Bitcoin, only 19% is yet to be mined. So we can start to see some comparisons there. They have a similar level of, I guess, relative scarcity compared to their maximum future supply. But we've already become closer to the maximum supply of Bitcoin than we have in gold in its short lifespan of 12 years. So Bitcoin has been referred to as digital gold in that it has this level of scarcity that is comparable to gold. The primary difference is that it is coded into Bitcoin's structure and we know the exact rate at which new coins will be produced. So gold and Bitcoin cannot become less scarce. They are both recyclable, although both can also be lost by their owners. Wow. So are, we're not officially saying this, but I might just go and get some Bitcoin tonight. <laughs> Who knows, right? Um, but something very interesting that I found, um, I think it was through a conversation with you earlier, John, it was uh, pertaining to forking. So, I, I mean, I think you're the best at, um, at explaining this one. So do you want to take it away? It's very interesting. You told me about it and I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, that's a thing? Yeah, so there's this action in blockchain called a fork. So say, for instance, an active blockchain is being run. There are consistently small adjustments being made to the blockchain. And when these changes are made unanimously across the network, it's called a fork. And a fork can be one of two kinds. It can be a soft or a hard fork. Now, a soft fork describes an alteration made to the blockchain that enables it to be backwards compatible. Basically, it can still run on the same network that it previously was. A hard fork, however, indicates that it has become a separate and distinct network and it is not backwards compatible. So Bitcoin has had several hard forks. Um, Litecoin and Bitcoin Gold and Zcash come to mind. These are all now distinct cryptocurrencies. And I got to personally experience a positive effect of one of these hard forks somewhat recently. A month or two ago, I was holding a, a number of coins of the cryptocurrency Steam, S-T-E-E-M, which got hard forked into Hive, a new distinct blockchain network due to disagreements in their management team. So basically I was holding 3000 Steam and all of a sudden I was still holding 3000 Steam, but I also had 3000 Hive. Both were simultaneously valid, but on distinct networks. And the bizarre thing about the concept is the carrying over of coins from one to another. And the net result was basically a doubling of the value of the investment, kind of tantamount to basically cloning an entire market. And yeah, obviously hearing about this, you think 
free money. It's kind of ludicrous as an idea, isn't it? I personally can't think of a real-world parallel to this phenomenon. If we could imagine a market for something spontaneously appearing and also having a high perceived value within traditional finance institutions, it would likely be considered a rort. It's insane. Because if you think about it, it's like it actually... Because then it kind of completely takes me off my feet in terms of like, what are we saying with this scarcity? But at the same time, if you take a a fork of a currency, you have the potential to double your currency. Well, not that currency. It's technically different. I understand it's not the same Bitcoin reserve, but just the fact that you have something else of value that you almost feel like you've gotten given. But that's not the case. It's just so fascinating to me, you know? And I feel like... Um, yeah, it, it really, like, I'd consider myself, like, a pretty techie person. I'd like to think I divulge in technology quite a bit. But if I'm having issues getting my head around it, you know, like, I understand it now, but just at the start, I mean, I don't know how, I maybe there needs to be something that helps your average consumer understand what this technology is and the complexities and intricacies of it. Because I've seen so many people come up to me and ask me should i invest in bitcoin and i'm like i don't know i mean it's up to you but then they don't even know what bitcoin is you know they think it's just some kind of something in the cloud <laughs> so um yeah it's fascinating it's fascinating yep there are a lot of ins and outs i do anticipate this will become somewhat more publicly aware over the years to come totally um, but I think even if things were to get people, there's almost like this distrust as well because they see these cryptocurrencies soaring and then going down. And um, I don't know if you've, but there's one thing that people usually, um, I guess, go back to, and that's like your country's official money, right? Your currency. You have a lot of faith in that. So it kind of spun crypto on its head when these states came in and they were like, hey, you know, we see crypto, we've got some money, why don't we start making a cryptocurrency? And they kind of just flipped everything on its head. And then one state said, hey, we want to do it. And then these other countries went ahead and they followed through. So you've got these, um, sw you've got Swedish people wanting to release this um, e-krona, I think. But then you've also got these Lithuanian, um, this Lithuanian, uh, I mean, Lithuania, what am I saying? Not even Lithuanian people. Lithuanian state saying, hey, um, we're going to do LB coin. And you've got all of these, um, you've got China as well. Um, it's kind of crazy. So there's obviously, some people say it's a complete contradiction. They say the whole idea of this cryptocurrency is that you don't have a third party constantly, like, I guess, a state third party constantly monitoring these transactions that defeats the purpose. Um, it's almost like a freedom revolution in currency. So with states getting involved in this, it's kind of flipping that on its head, right? Yeah. I saw that yeah. the CEO of Ethereum had met with Vladimir Putin a few years ago. Supposedly, he was interested in establishing some state-backed cryptocurrency in Russia. In terms of the ramifications of such a development, quite significantly, it could help in circumventing sanctions or other economic penalties imposed by foreign bodies. Venezuela, as well, over the last while, has seen their currency become significantly debased. I saw that their government was accepting Bitcoin for passport payments. However, not their own national currency due to its lack of value. 
an interesting case study into how Bitcoin can serve to protect one's assets from devaluation. That is absolutely mental. I mean, I love that it's happening, but that's just a crazy thought, isn't it? Um, it's almost unfathomable. Yeah, you mentioned the state-backed cryptocurrency for Sweden. So Sweden, from what I've heard, is already almost entirely a cashless society. 1% of their GDP exists in banknotes. Compare this to 11% in the EU. Sweden expects to fully replace it, their national currency by 2023, provided their trial for the e-krona is successful. Yeah, that is incredible, you know? Um, it, it, it really does flip currency on its head. Um, and if they have a state-backed currency like that, I mean, your, your money suddenly has value now. Um, well, a lot more value now. Um, do you know if it's working similar to Bitcoin with the scarcity element there, or is it a bit different? Yeah, it's hard to be sure. I would presume that if issuing a state-backed cryptocurrency, a critical thing to contemplate would be giving it a soft cap, a, like a, a flexible limit, rather than an insurpassable hard limit to the monetary supply. That would enable adjustments to be made in the future such that money supply and monetary value can remain at manageable levels. This would be because if you were to have a hard cap like Bitcoin, for instance, wherein only 21 million will ever exist, that is the engine for disinflation, meaning that the coins will become hugely more valuable up until they plateau at some certain point in the future. I would imagine that governments would deem something with such volatility to be viable as a currency. So I might expect them to peg the coin to some kind of standard. And on the point of volatility, while still highly volatile from projections that I've seen which apply logarithmic regressions to price, at the point we see a million dollar Bitcoin, volatility will likely only be about 3 to 5% annually. Around this point, its lessened volatility might make it more attractive to outsiders. And this degree of volatility would make it more similar to other traditional currencies, which actually fluctuate by similar margins. Furthermore, I can see it mostly replacing gold as a store of value. Consider the drawbacks of gold, right? So you have to be able to store it. You'd probably require some kind of expensive safe to keep it nice and secure. You also have to buy it at a premium from some gold vendor or broker. And when you want to sell it for cash, there would also be a slight markdown. These vendors have to make a living too. So there's this really fascinating idea. Um, I don't know if you've... Um, have you read that book, um, Sapiens? Um, by Yuval... Oh gosh, I can't remember his head off... I mean, um, his name off the uh, top of my head. Um, Yuval Noah Harari, I think? Um, I don't know if you've read that. It's. It, I think there's a very interesting comparison being made between some things he discusses in that book um so he goes through the history of currency right and he briefly um touches on the fact that um your money um if you get colonized by a different empire um a lot of the time your coins might mean nothing the next day you know because no one takes that anymore um and if you've got a state that's completely shifting to a new cryptocurrency uh, it makes you wonder, what's going to happen to all of this money that's otherwise there that used to hold a lot of value? Let's say you just had quite a bit stashed away under your bed or something for a bad day, right? 
And yeah, sure, you might have conversions at the start, but like if if your country is certain that they want to go completely crypto, people are going to be much less inclined to take that normal money, the well, old money. Um and it could completely like, I don't know, create havoc. Um it could destroy day-to-day business, it could destroy retail chains, it could have a massive massive impact. And even if you stage it, there will still be people with the old currency that um that will obviously be affected by this. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I'd like to think though that with the gift of hindsight, we might be able to read this as having happened already in the past. I would imagine that in the case of traditional currency being slowly transformed into a cryptocurrency, the state government would accept a one-for-one trade-off between the old currency and the newly minted cryptocurrency. I think that if such a trade was not possible, there could be a significant economic impact felt. On top of that, both might have to be accepted as equals throughout some period of time so that you're not really disenfranchising people from any of their savings. That's what you're thi- that's what I was thinking. Like there has to be something there and who bears the burden in that situation? Who's taking in the currency that doesn't mean anything anymore? You know what I mean? But I guess maybe the government could. The new one. Yeah. I guess you're right. It's very very fascinating. Um and I guess you mentioned that um I think it was Sweden with the e krona, right? Um, you mentioned that there was like still a minority of people that aren't using the cryptocurrency, which I find, I mean, not cryptocurrency. I mean, just uh, aren't you are actually using cash. Um, and that fascinates me as well, because in trying to do this, um, shift to e-krona, um, would we be, you know, not us, of course, but is there a particular disadvantage towards a minority group or many minority groups that might not have, I guess the capacity to go completely cashless um, or the desire to go completely cashless. I mean, it's, it's very fascinating. I can see massive benefits of it, like from reducing tax evasion to almost nothing, you know, because you can't hide cash if there is no cash. Um, but th- th- there is a potential uh, loser in this situation. Sorry, continue. Part of its strength, as you were describing how all transactions ever made are now part of the Bitcoin blockchain and viewable for online. This is a vehicle with which Big Brother might be able to spy on populations. Peeking into the ledger could enable the tracking of the finances of a huge number of people. So it's in everyone's interest to approach this cautiously. What everyone's interest aside from those who wish to I don't know, implement a surveillance state or something, perhaps. Yeah, we would prefer not to hand over the potential for overreach so easily, I imagine. There are blockchain projects which come to mind which have decided to address this problem, enabling transactions with some degree of privacy. Monero is a primary one that comes to mind. Now, I couldn't explain the technology behind it, but Presumably, it has built-in mechanisms that make it more difficult to track the origin and destination of its coins. Yeah, definitely. And that even introduces something more interesting. So even if that's not the case, and you do have the central authority that can see a lot of things. I know when cryptocurrency first came out, there were a lot of like uh, nefarious uses for it. 
Um, I know that over on the dark web, just from news articles and accounts, um, you've got a lot of really shady stuff like uh, drug deals, I guess, child trafficking, all of these terrible, terrible things going under the radar just because, I guess, this cryptocurrency system exists where it's, um, it's relatively anonymous. And you can get a, while the transactions aren't anonymous, I don't think there's too much identifying information there. Um, so maybe a central, I, I think this could also help combat those things because if society goes, okay, we love cryptocurrency, it's a great idea, but we choose to only use the government one, it, there, there might be an argument to be made that there wouldn't be as much of an incentive to either allow an alternative cryptocurrency or use an alternative cryptocurrency. Yeah, the funny thing about the idea of disallowing a cryptocurrency is that you can only do so by shutting down the internet. That's another example of where in the power of Bitcoin lies. If people want to be able to establish a means of totally private and secure untraceable internet funds transfer, they will. You can try to regulate it all you like, but decentralization really does limit the decision-making ability of governments at least on this playing field. Yeah, but you've also, you see um, companies, I believe Forbes reported on this a while back, where um, Russia is moving to effectively ban crypto because um, I think China also did something similar. Uh, Beijing uh, was banning companies from raising funds using cryptos. And in, in effect, if you ban companies from using it, um, and if you have a I guess a state that actually has the power to enforce something like that. Um, it, it really, it really brings to question um, whether countries actually have the power. But you're right. I think maybe in the gray markets you can't actually control it because it's just like it's almost like you can go back to like primitive bartering, right? You can say, "Hey, I have this and I want that. Will you trade me for it, regardless of what it is?" So you're right, there, there's a case to be made that you can't really control it in those smaller, I guess, more dangerous areas. But on a bigger scale, it's definitely something that's... Become, that, that's what scares me about, um, I guess, uh, state-based crypto. They can easily just ban the use of other crypto and just use their own. I think even Trump was trying to pass an executive order um, banning a cryptocurrency, um, which is insane. It's like... Uh, yeah, and that's the thing. Yeah, but it's hilarious because uh, you're right. It's very, very hard to control and monitor this. Um, but I really do think it would completely axe the adoption of you know your average consumer doing this. And it makes you wonder what governments are losing from this. What kind of data do governments actually have with current currency that they deem so valuable, you know? Um, there's, yeah, I mean, honestly, I feel like we could sit here and discuss cryptocurrency for days. There's so many layers to this, you know? So fascinating. Yeah, exactly. On a similar note to the company ClickOne we mentioned earlier, this other blockchain project named WePower have their own token as well. Their concept is basically summarized as rather than democratized investment in real estate, it represents democratized investment in renewable energy projects. The same principles apply to ClickOne in that this enables smaller scale investment investors to participate. It's more efficient as it bypasses financial institutions and increases the investment pool size for these two reasons. 
will increase global access to capital for such projects and increase speed and transparency. So their plan is to tokenize energy, specifically renewable energy. One token, that is one WePower token, represents a kilowatt hour of energy to be produced at some point in the future. Trade these coins with other entities. And honestly, I think this is a great, an enormous step forward in the ability for people to make green investments. Yeah, th that's magical, you know. Um, I hadn't even thought of all of the processes that you can cut out all of the middlemen from. You can completely just, yeah, almost all of the money that you put in there gets to the other side without any cuts. Um, I think that is so powerful, especially when you're using it in such an environmental manner. I mean, like no, not environmental manner, sorry, environmentally friendly manner. That is amazing. Um, it, it's really a shame that governments are actually looking to block out cryptocurrencies, um, especially if they're doing it of fears of this shady um, black market of um, illegal services, because obviously in trying to control that market, they're going to miss out on so many amazing opportunities like this that present themselves that have a massive, I guess, potential for change and impact in a very positive manner. Um, yeah, that, that is so cool. I, I will have to look into WePower after this. It's so awesome. it's a pretty cool concept, yeah. Well, Shabazz, I think we have touched on a great deal of subtopics here, and I hope that our listeners have learned a thing or two regarding blockchain tech, as well as its use cases. Do you have any final thoughts, Shabazz? Um, yeah, I mean, the first time I was introduced to this topic, everything felt a bit overwhelming. Um, but trust me, if you stick with it enough, do your research, I believe that everyone has quite a bit to learn about it. And um, if the stuff we talked about here today was a bit, um, especially at the start with the introduction, if it was a bit um, daunting, uh, don't be afraid. It's completely normal. Uh, but if you actually do take the time to learn this, um, you could be a proponent of change in society. Uh, so, yeah, definitely take the time out to look into this if you found any of the latter part of the podcast interesting, which I'm assuming you did because you're still here. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, thank you. Well, cheers for chatting once again, Shabazz. And to our listeners, thank you kindly. Until next time on Voltec Tech Talks. Till next time. Take care. Signing off.